Party Pal, the mind-bending film and television podcast you didn't know you needed. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Shields, with our co-host tonight, Mitch Lucas. Mitch, what's up, man? How's it going? It's good. It's good. Uh, hanging in, all that jazz, the things, all the things you say when uh, someone asks you, how's, how's it yeah. going these days? Um, before we die, I'm really excited about this episode, but I know you wanted to talk about something before we got going, um, a loss that occurred. You want to you wanna take, it, take it from here? Yes, um, indie actress, uh, cult, a- cult star Linda Manns uh, passed away last week. Um, mm-hmm. If you don't know her, uh, she was uh, a very young actress in her teens when she did her first film, Days of Heaven, with Terrence Malick. Uh, she went on to do uh, The Wonders, which is one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, oh, wow. In uh, Out of the Blue. Um, she uh, also was in uh, Harmony Korean's Gummo, did a small mm-hmm. role there. But in this very short period of time, uh, she did just three amazing films. And uh, she'd been out, of, been out of the circulation for a number of years, and I think she yeah. just wanted to live a quiet life. And I know a lot of directors probably, uh, well, she was called upon. She was, she's even in Seven, uh, has a cameo in the movie, not Seven, mm-hmm. but uh, sorry, The Game. Uh, with David Fincher's the game, the game. Yes. Yep. so yep. she would do small films uh, over the years, I, and I'm sure people called her, uh, you know, to do to do things. And but I think she preferred to sort of live a, a more solitary life. Um, but the work, <clears throat> you have to check it out. Uh, I've actually never seen Out of the Blue. It's one of those films that's not available anywhere. You have to get it on yep. eBay or something. But The Wonders mm. is. Uh, I was blown away when I saw her. She's this plays this uh, character Pee Wee, this young little kid that wants to be part of the the gangs, uh, this particular gang in the 50s, and when they don't let her be part of it, she joins uh, the Baldies, which is like a, a sort of Hell's Angels kind of crew, and just her work in that is phenomenal. Her work in Days of uh, Days of Heaven is phenomenal, and really, I can't I can't say enough about her, but it's just really sad that she's not with us anymore. Um, and I truly, just to mention truly, truly lost. It's one of those things where uh, you're right. She didn't, you know, she wasn't out there as much as um, you know, as much as you would have liked. As she was that good, but I mean, Days of Heaven is one of the most uh, beautiful films I've ever ever seen. When I talk to cinem- about cinematography with people, it's the first first thing I bring up. It's just it's that beautiful and. And and she was so great in it. She was she plays the young uh, narrator, and she was not initially supposed to play. She was supposed to uh, play a smaller part to start. Right. And uh, Terrence Terrence Malick was so impressed by her, he asked her to um, you know do some narration for the film. Um, and you know she was such a big part of what I think is truly one of the best films that's ever been made. And yeah, uh, I know it's a small part, but I, the only other time I've 
really knew her work was in Gummo, which is a, a film that really rocked my world. But yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. It's a loss, and you know, I wish we could pay tribute to to more. We, it just seems all the time we're losing such greats in, in this art form. But uh, Linda was certainly that, so I'm glad um, we took a second to 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 uh, pay her uh, some homage here. So uh, today we're here to do um, a little something different. Um, I'm here to interview uh, one of uh, the co-hosts, Mitch, in this case, instead of simply conversing with him and dissecting film and television or interviewing others together, for Mitch is the writer and director behind a new short film entitled Coincatcher. Coincatcher, which was shot entirely on 16mm and Super 8 film, stars David Carl as Kelly Nodrop, a former world record coincatcher in search of his former greatness. It also stars Katie Hartman as Dez and David Loveband as Boss Boom. Coincatcher is a comedic take off a boxing movie where down on his luck slugger, who's a shell of his former self, meets the muse that helps him fight again. Mitch has been making art, photography, pastel drawings, comedic sketches, and films for over 20 years, and I am thrilled to have him on the program in this capacity. Uh, welcome to the party, pal, Mitch. Thanks so much for having me in this party, in this <laughs> in version this of capacity. a party. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's a very, uh, very fun to uh, talk about this thing. We've talked about it in bits and pieces on other episodes. So absolutely. Uh, cool well, first off, to... congrats, congrats. Yeah. It's really, it's really, it's, it's got to feel good. Always been a project you put your heart into and. I'm sure it's taken a while to, to to bring to life, and and so congrats there. But um, let's just let's just kick into it. How um, how this come to be? What was the inspiration behind Coin Catcher? Well, <clears throat> the original inspiration is that there's an episode of Happy Days in season four called the Book of Records, and mm-hmm. basically <laughs> it's about uh, Fonzie's cousin Angie who doesn't have very many... He's not very good at anything, and he's sort of down on his luck, and he's visiting Fonzie. And this uh, Megillah book of records comes into town looking for anyone who has a special talent. And it turns out that Angie uh, is a coin catcher. Um, And, you know, unbeknownst to Fonzie, but Fonzie encourages him to enter the contest, and he ends up, you know, catching more quarters... uh, than any, or he, he ends up catching the world record and sort of gaining his confidence. And this film that I made is a sort of uh, thinking about what would happen to this guy if, if he sort of peaked and didn't quite have, he couldn't take it anywhere else and he fell on hard times. It's not, well, I don't use the name Angie. I just sort of made my own take and, a, and it's sort of a, a character uh-huh. that lives in another paradox, maybe. But it's a sort of, I would say, a spiritual sequel to this episode of Happy Days, where I, <laughs> I love, actually thought of doing it was uh, sitting on the subway one day and just daydreaming. And I imagined, out of the blue, I just imagined David Carl as this ex-coin catcher who just like walks the mm-hmm. streets uh, looking for you know spare change or food out of garbage cans. And that's where it started for me, about... Two two years ago now. Okay, two years. I was going to ask the time frame. So Happy Days obviously means a lot to you because I heard you mention how this is kind of the sequel or you know inspired by that episode of Happy Days, um, the Book of Records. But also you kind of mentioned how, uh, well, really, everything I make is sort of a sequel 
two happy days. That so that the happy days was something you grew up on that really kind of uh, you know inspired your aesthetic or your thought processes. What's the deal with you and happy days? I think it's what I would consider to be the first show I ever saw. Um, I became mm. a fan of Andy Griffith's show, Leave It to Beaver, a lot of classic television. I do think that <clears throat> Happy Days was like the first thing I remember being on TV. And it was, uh, I was really mesmerized by Fonzie. And there was something sort of hyper exciting about the show as a kid. And I think it just stuck with me uh, over mm. the years. And as I grew up, I, start, I started to realize that the show took place in the 50s but they were shooting it in the 70s and 80s and you can sort of see the 70s and 80s peeking out from behind the costumes and there's an essence to the show in itself that is sort of like its own genre it's like its own time period yeah. it's it's the 50s and the and the 70s all mixed together and i always thought it was funny because it's only a 15 it's only about a 20 year difference between when the show began and when the actual time period that they were depicting but they really Mm -hmm. they like missed the mark a lot in terms of just (laughs) i i saw i saw an episode where somebody just straight up had bell bottoms in the first season you know and i love that though i i i don't mean to say that to to diminish the show in any way i just mean to say that that's a time period that has its own feel and essence and i was inspired not just by the fact that it took place in the 50s, but I was inspired by the time period that the show exists in, in its own way. Man, I love that description of how, like, the, uh, the, the, the 70s, early 80s are kind of peeking through and finding their ways into this 50s thing, creating its own genre. That's really, really cool. I've never heard it pictured that way, which is awesome. And, uh, yeah, the appeal is something I definitely get. But uh, it's, speaking of inspiration... Um, I, I, and, you know, I could make many, many guesses and, you know, just after seeing Coin Catcher. But um, I'm curious about your kind of being such a film enthusiast. I'm curious about what other um, inspiration was drawn from for this for this film that is Coin Catcher. Like what what other um, are there nods to other films or filmmakers um, in Coin Catcher or, or, or inspiration you drew from for uh, this film? Uh, absolutely. The number one. Uh, influence outside of Happy Days in the original episode is Rocky. Um, I thought I thought about Rocky One, uh, and maybe even Rocky Balboa, the Rocky Six, I guess. I, but it was called Rocky yes, Balboa. Yep. But um, the the idea of of Rocky being down on his luck, as as in terms of like eighty percent of the film, was was interesting to me. I love Rocky as a boxing movie because yeah. it really is a drama. There, there isn't a ton of boxing in it. When there is boxing in it, in it, it's great because you've been waiting the whole movie for for something, but really it's a drama the whole way through. And um, Rocky, the music, uh, really was something I was listening it, listening to as I was writing it. Mickey's theme uh, is comes to mind. I, I used to play it over and over again as I was trying to find uh-huh. the story. And I was <clears throat> really... You know, it's hard to remember what you were inspired by at what time. It all sort of. I, sure. If I if if I said something else, I would I would say five minutes from now. Go. That was actually the number one thing. They spin around <laughs> yeah. in your head, but I can I would definitely put Rocky One as the biggest influence in terms of what, not just not so much about who the character was or who he is, but what he is now and where he where he is in his life and what he's trying yep. to find. 
It's so interesting. I was thinking about boxing films when I was kind of getting my headset, uh, mindset ready to talk to you. Just, it's funny how there is, I mean, there's so many boxing films. It's almost, it can almost be looked at as its own genre. I mean, everyone thinks of Rocky, Raging Bull, you know, uh, Creed and, you know, the whole thing. But if you look back through the years, the amount of boxing films that were in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and all the way coming up through The Fighter and Million Dollar Baby and what, it, what like, Cinderella Man and Her- Hurricane. Just, just, I mean, it's wild, and it's, 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 it is something that's kind of ingrained in us, that, that rags to riches or that struggling story. And this is, this is the story of someone who's lost it and who finds a muse. And so let's talk about the, 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 those people the, who, who lost it and found the muse. Can we talk about the cast some? Let's, let's dig into, I mean, there's a, there's a great trio here. of um, You got David Carl. Um, kind of as a lead here, uh, I I love him on stage. He's on uh, Trumpelier, uh, Point Break Live, uh, Celebrity One Man Hamlet. Um, you know, but I see him with TV a lot. He's on Blue Bloods. Uh, I've seen him on Blue Bloods, Mr. Robot. Um, one, me and my daughter are loving something called The Big Fib on Disney Plus, where he he plays some characters. Um, but it was uh, probably great having David take the lead on this, huh? You know. David and I met about 10 years ago now, probably probably nine years ago at this point, I think. Um, but uh, we've been friends ever since. Uh, we hadn't done a ton of things together, but we've always, I think we did some improv shows as a two-prov group. Uh, and, and that was probably when we developed a little bit of a, a performing familiarity with each other, understood each other's comedic you know, styles and what we might what we think is funny and and uh but he's just been a friend as much as anything uh i was really blessed to find improv yeah i i was really lucky to find improv in 2010 because that started my trajectory of really being able to make stuff and having people who wanted to make things whether it was a, a sketch or a film or put on a play on stage at you know the pit for no reason whatsoever other than you think it might be funny if you did it um, that idea mm-hmm. of it would be funny if we did this might be what guides most everything I do. And uh, David is one of those people who he's part of that gang of people who w- would yep. want to do something just because it would be really sort of funny if he did it, uh, if that makes sense. So uh, he was great in this role and he uh, he really he's perfect for it. He really, you know, when you write something, you have. You have, if you have the character in mind, you imagine that actor saying it in your head. You're imagining how they would say it. And sometimes the mm-hmm. actor is acting in your brain while you're writing it, you know. And they're, they're, they're sort of, you're imagining them saying the lines and, and you're, you're almost writing for that person and imagining how they, how they react to yep. things. And you always keep in the back of your head, like, what if that person has a totally different take on it? And I don't know how to find that person that was in my head. But uh, that really didn't happen. I mean, he he really was like the person in my head. And it was just a very easy process to, you know, work with him. And and he's really passionate, you know, when he's when he's in it. He's really there's an intensity. And that's what's so great about comedy is because comedy, I mean, is sort of can be a cliche at times. But the more serious you take it, the funnier it's going to be. Um, so if you treat it like like a yep, drama, absolutely, and let the scenario be the comedy, it's going to be really funny. And I think he does that uh, perfectly. I couldn't agree more. I uh, I went ahead and uh, 
tracked him down and cornered him and um, asked him, you know, tell me a little bit about working with you or kind of anything, you know, from the thing. And he said, uh, Mitch is one of the most passionate people I know and puts so much heart into everything he does. When he said he had written a script about a coin catcher that was like Rocky with coin catching and he wanted me and Katie to do it, he was going to shoot it on film. I said, yes, immediately. Knowing Mitch's passion for old cameras in the 70s and his credible knowledge of film, I knew this would be something special. Any chance to work with a good friend or on something they put their whole heart into is priceless. All that emotion makes the comedy in the script work even better. On set, it was just a privilege to see Mitch in his element doing the hard work he loves after so many months of planning it. It all really matters more when you have film and limited time and takes. We often only did one or two takes per shot and it made every work a heightened level of preparation and focus in a totally different way. The energy was palpable and exciting and I'll never forget it. So I think, uh, I think it was pretty special for him as well. So. Wow. That was, that was emotional to hear. Um, that's, that's amazing. And he's very right in terms of the shooting. We, you know, you learn things when you shoot in a format for the first time and, really doing doing this was the first time I ever shot a narrative on 16 millimeter and I probably could have used a lot more film to give us more options but we we went for we went for it with a, a shooting style that only allowed for you know I think the way I approached it which may not be the way I would approach it in the future was we would rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and then the master shot and then the two singles would be one take each. So it was three takes. And then if there was something we didn't have, we would do a cut in and just get the lines with whatever film we had left. Um, but that created a very, it, for what it's worth, it created a very dramatic theatrical scenario where you felt like you were on stage. I mean, we had, uh, we had one end of the day scenario where uh, uh, David is catching... Katie is encouraging to catch a coin for the first time in however many years. And she kisses him and he decides to go for it. And we only had physically enough film left to roll the scene. I think we would have had 10 seconds left or something like that. So we, we had just that, that opportunity. And I said, you know, whatever happens, just if you mess, if you drop the coin, if you mess up, just play it because this is what we have for the movie, you know. So you're 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 sort of nervous, like in a way that you'd be nervous for being on stage, you know, because you're like, this is actually a performance here. Exactly. Everything we do is this is what this is what comes of it. Uh, I was going to ask later uh, on some challenges about shooting on um, film like this, and I think you just nailed that. But we have to talk about Katie and David as well, Katie. Um, from obviously, uh, not obviously, but uh, she was had a big role in Netflix the week of with um, Adam Sandler and Chris Rock, Skinny. She's from Skinny Bitch Jesus Meeting. Um, I've seen her on stage. She works with Katie uh, David on uh, David and Katie Get uh, Remarried. It's so good. I, ca- I can't wait for this all to end so they can get back on stage doing that. Um, and, of course, I have to mention, she's from the podcast, Godween Evan. She's incredible. David, uh, Blood Band, He's he was on... Um, uh, the Chris Gethard show is, I think, where he's he's spent a lot of time. Miss Maisel, but so those two just added so much. It was such a cool, cool trio. What was it like working with? Um, I don't mean to lump them together by any means, but uh, Katie and David. Katie had Katie came into it 
with, <clears throat> you know, she picked up a lot of ideas for her costume yep. because, you know, I needed people to sort of maybe help me out a little bit with like going to shop for for their character. And I, you know, I get, I would send them some photos, but Katie really did a good job of sort of hunting down her, what her vision mm-hmm. for the character. And she was so prepared and the scene between she and David that where they meet, I, I just think is one of my favorite things I've ever put together and not because of anything I did, but just the way they worked in so well together. And there's just a poignancy is that the um, the bit the the so and so guy conversation? Yes, yes. That's my favorite. It's incredible. Uh, this the whole you know. Well, I don't know anything about rubber bands. That that that's the part. That's that it's it's unbelievable. That meeting is fantastic. Yeah, I wanted to write this idea that these people were saying words, but their words meant nothing. It was how it was something something inside of them was you know pulling them together maybe emotionally totally but the the words were pointless and uh yep. you know so she just brought so much to it and everything that i would have hoped for and then david love band i mean i i didn't know him uh through uh, the comedy scene but david and katie knew him and they were able to sort of vouch for me and he was uh he's a film lover as well he loves shooting he i think he shoots with uh 35 millimeter cameras and he's a fan of you know celluloid and, and old movies and things so he was really game based on my pitch of that we were shooting on 16 millimeter and he just brings this wild zany character that is larger than life and i really wrote it to be you know a not a a, a bad guy that you're like is this guy real because i just love that stylized mm-hmm. way of looking at it i'm really inspired by you know the rock and roll high school and Clint Howard. And I think he plays uh-huh. a perfect character that maybe Clint Howard would have played in the eighties. Uh, you know, yep. but he out. just brings so much energy and fun to it. And he makes those dark, depressing scenes really fun because he's mean in the funnest way. And, you know, you get, you don't, you don't feel so it's, bad. It's over the top in a palpable way. That's like comfortable. Yes. It makes, it makes, yeah. Some of the cedar, cedar, moments comfortable it's really yeah, great so it, it was uh perfect so tell me about um just shooting you know kind of i love uh yeah obviously you're shooting in uh 60 millimeter you got the film you're uh super eight as well and, and you're in new york there's challenges with that i mean anything you can tell me about you know kind of how you approach shooting this and you know there's different i don't know anything anything you got for me i'd love to hear hear uh anything the process was very new to me uh very much a learning experience in terms of setting up these shots if i was shooting digital you know i would have been holding maybe a dslr and being able to move it around with my hand or with a small little rig and and putting the camera in a lot of different places or and shooting you know probably not even cutting just letting it roll so you just it was all about being more decisive and planning a lot more and really you know, this is a, a movie where the camera doesn't move much. It's really set on a tripod and yeah. really following the characters in a more classic way. Um, it, it, it that doesn't have a, a dolly shots of these things. It's really going back to fundamentals and you know, film school, setting it up and setting up just you know, still shots and and letting people uh, really act within the camera and, and letting their their faces. Uh, be the action and um 
you know, it's it's a it's a process where shooting on film, you're you're gaining so much, but you're also working with limitations. And like I said, in terms of how much footage you can shoot, how much you you have available, um, you know, there's a, there's a chance you literally may not get what you want, or you may get everything. And if you unload it correctly, un- incorrectly, and expose it to light, you you might have lost everything, or the camera can jam. So there's a lot of variables. Um, that you have to contend with that you would know whether or not you you dealt with them in digital where you're seeing the footage as you're shooting uh, with most of this with all of it you know I would shoot this footage and I wouldn't know whether it was successful until a week later uh, mm-hmm. so that's a week mm-hmm. where you're you just you know you try to forget about it but when the lab calls you and tells you it's ready uh, I work with Metropolis Post uh, who who they do great work and they work with a lot of independent filmmakers in New York city, Alex Ross Perry, a lot of, uh, a lot of great people. And, uh, oh, cool. I'm just lucky that they, you know, it, willing to, to work with, uh, guys doing these smaller projects, but, um, they, you know, they're really nice about bringing you in. And, and, uh, I remember the first time I brought stuff in, he said, can you come back to the, to the color room with me? And I was like, Oh no, Oh man. And he said, I just wanted to show you one thing. And there was like one little blue line for like a fraction of a second. And he said, you know, I just was worried about that. I was like, oh, man, if that's the only thing I have to contend with, we're in good shape. So uh, <laughs> with, all oh, the, yeah. with all the things that could have gone wrong, you know, uh, a little blue line on the left side for two or three seconds was, uh, you know, that, that was about all that, that we had to contend with. So we got, I got very lucky in terms of how it came out. Uh, and, yep. uh, but, but really that, that can be a problem if you shoot a full day's footage and you don't have usable footage, you didn't expose it correctly yeah. and you didn't know at the time. Um, but, uh, I was lucky. I shoot, I shoot a lot of street photography. So I had a, a good experience with exposing uh, film, you know, on the fly. And, and so that, that helped me out. Uh, I think of when, you know, these big, huge productions are shooting on 60 millimeter and just like just these huge, huge scenes and just like how intense that is. Because, I mean, it, it, it is it's finite. It's like it's it's you're dealing with these real things. It's just wild to think about. And But the look is so I love all the train shots and, and like just the outdoor scene, uh, the walking scenes and, and, and by the river. It's, it looks beautiful, Mitch. It really it, re- it really does. You know what I uh, struck me? on multiple moments was the sound production and there was one moment uh, particularly and i'm sure sound and and music is obviously a big thing to you because i know the films you love and it just it, it, it just you know it matters so much to the whole aesthetic of the film but there was a scene where he's kind of um uh explaining to des how, you know when it all fell apart and, and you know the, the the coins are dropping and the sound production on there was really really great um uh, did you work with someone on that? That was it was it was fantastic. Uh, well, that was one of the areas where I didn't have a, a big budget was sound, but it's huge. It's you know okay. massively important. So, <clears throat> you know, I spent months um, looking for sound bites that were available uh, to use. You know, uh, sort of a la carte on online and and uh, things where you could pay for festival rights or TV rights for you know, mm-hmm. a small amount of money. So those are really, uh, those are really just, um, you know, catalog songs that I just found the right stuff. Um, 
I wish I would have, you know, that's one of the things when you make a film, there's going to be compromises. So had I shot digitally, I might've been able to work with a composer for, you know, three or four months. But with all the money going to film, I really had to be, um, sort of clever, uh, in terms of how music was used. Um, you know, there's, there's, uh, it's really meant to be an undertone with the film and not a, not a, yep. a star. Yeah. It's it works, a, it's man. a, but I love that dark song that you're talking about. And it was, uh, very much inspired by a Rocky three. It's like this sort of dark moment where he's sort of not sure if he's going to be able to take on Clubber Lang or something, you know? And, uh, so I, yep. that, that becomes its own thing when you find a, a royalty-free piece or something and use it, it becomes something else. But the the genesis of it was like dark psychological, trying to find yourself type of ideas, Definitely. you know. Uh, exactly. Falling apart, yeah. finding confidence, the whole thing. Yeah, no, it's 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 so, the, the, the absurdism is wonderful. Kind of, you know, taking, uh, you know, a, a trope that we know so well and inserting something that we know so, you know, uh, little, in coin catching, it just it's it, it's it's got all the heart of those films, but just all the joy of something that's so absurd as this, which is so so great. So what what is um if any, and this question's absurd as anything. If if any, uh, what's uh what's the takeaway from the coin catcher? We're just having a good time with this visualizing, or is like it's it's what do you want the audience walking away feeling if 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 you could control them i know that's a loaded question i'm just curious your aim it's, i always feel that there's sometimes there's an aim sometimes you're just trying to create art but um if there were a name i think that you know the one thing i feel about the film that plays into the absurdity i don't think he learned anything in this process <laughs> yep i think that he sort of is an artist in he's really married to this talent that he has. And he knows that this is what he's going to do for the rest of his life. The good thing that is that he found it again. Um, but it isn't clear. I don't think it's really clear whether or not he understands that why he's doing it or mm-hmm. if he's doing it for the right reasons. You know, he, he um, I think Des is trying to get him to stop thinking about the past, you know? To look for the future, even if that means he never catches anything again. And I think he really knows who he is. So the takeaway the takeaway is I just hope people laugh and think it's really stupid. The people who tell me that it was the stupidest thing they've ever heard, it, it makes me very happy. The takeaway in terms of character, i I'd tell you exactly how I feel about it. Well, I was watching some show called Real People back in the 80s. And they would, <clears throat> they would talk to people who had like odd talents and this guy was like a marble champion. He just like, you know, was really good at marbles. And he said, you know, I don't care what you do. If you're really passionate about it, even if it's marbles like me, then it's worth something. And I think the takeaway is it coins, it, even if just catching coins is a thing that you love more than anything. If that's if if as long as you don't hurt people along the way, if you're if you want to do that and that's the thing you want to do then you should do it. And that's how I've really lived my artistic life. I've always just tried to do this weird thing that I like, and maybe somebody else will like it, and maybe they won't. But it's a lot of fun to see if people will like it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's very, very likable. Do you, um, 
we get to see you at the end of the film. Is that something uh, you you make an appearance or aim to make an appearance in uh, in in all your works uh, prior or moving forward? Um, I really that came about because I really wanted um, a couple other friends to consider it, but the day we shot, it was about ninety six degrees, and you know we're used to that now. Back then, a year ago, that was like unthinkable. And to have a friend come over for like waiting around for three hours and then sit in the car for another 20 minutes in a hot car and then have two lines, I just felt really bad. So I, I just did it. Uh, and, you know, I saw the I saw the part and I, I understood the the uh, motivations, I guess, better than anyone. Yep. I don't know. Uh, really just a matter of I just couldn't get another person out there. Yep. Absolutely. Pra- 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 pragmatism there. Um, it's great. It's tons of fun. Um, I would ask you where to find it, but it's going to be links uh, are in the show notes. Um, uh, they're in the article that we're going to put out with this everywhere. We're going to we're going to be sharing it with it. So um, so enjoy, Mitch. It's really great. Uh, this is fun. You know, we talk about so many films. We go in deep. This is really really fun to be able to talk about uh, your uh, your work here. And I look forward to doing it again as you uh, keep doing your thing and keep doing your thing because it's awesome. Thank you so much. Um, I also want to throw one little factoid in there. Um, they they also refer to On the Waterfront as a boxing movie. Some some scholars have. So that might be that might be something that people want to check out on the waterfront as a, as a but look at it as a boxing movie. Absolutely, it's yeah, it's, it's yeah. No, that 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 makes sense to me. So great, Mitch. Uh, this is fun. Thanks again, and uh, thank you everyone out there for joining the party once again. The deputies took the pistols, they laid them on the shelf. If you want that bad man staggerly, you have to arrest him yourself. The high sheriff asked the bartender, who can that bad man be? Speak softly, said the bartender, that bad man staggerly. He touched old stack on the shoulder, say stack, why do you run? This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.